0: If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and this morning we are going to return to chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where we alluded to them before, but today we are going to get into the will of God and the salvation of men. Earlier on in my marriage, for the first couple of years, I worked in an electrical supply house, electrical and plumbing supply house, it was a combination of both, and uh we were constantly having to go back into the warehouse where all the overstocked items were and all the large items and we'd be climbing up on ladders on these really high shelves to get things down for customers. And eventually someone uh, fell off one of the ladders and they didn't get hurt too bad but they were banged up pretty good. And uh, the manager gave them the uh, you know injury report that they had to file for insurance, and one of the questions the play had to answer is, How did you get injured? And his answer was short and to the point. He wrote, I stepped on not a step. <laughs> Everyone knows that at the top of every ladder is that infamous sticker, not a step. And yet, because we are human, because we think we know better, we often like to step on not a step, because it gets us up another foot higher. In doing this, we put ourselves in danger. Well, in the text before us today, we have a couple of theological not a steps. And uh, you will see, as we get into the text, that there are certain things that really are tempting to go a little bit higher than what the text says. And some of you may even leave a little bit exasperated today because we did not go as high as you wished we would have. You would like to see me go all the way to the top and see if I would fall off. But I am not going to do that for you. But I am going to address some of the issues that relate to our passage. Our passage is not a difficult passage to understand, but it has some very difficult theological implications that are related to it. Let me just give you a summary of what we've looked at so far. In verses, chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, we know that this section is dealing about public worship. Specifically, how is the church supposed to function when it gathers together as a group of believers to worship God? We know this from verse 15 of chapter 3, which Paul says, I write you these things so you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So we know that that's what this is all about. And we know from our examination of verses 1 and 2, That this first section, especially the first eight verses of this section, are all a call to prayer. A call to prayer for the salvation of souls. We saw last time we were in the text that Paul gives us four ways to pray. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving. He gives us three kinds of people to pray for, all men, kings, and all who are in authority. And he tells us that we should pray to have tranquil, quiet lives and all godliness and dignity. That is the initial charge to prayer and the reasons why we pray. But as we pointed out last time, there is a reason. It's not just prayer for prayer's sake. It's not just pray for all men So we can pray for all men, but it's pray for all men for their salvation. And specifically, all men would include kings and all who are in authority, but he includes those two subgroups of all men so that we would pray specifically for them. If you remember, it is the kings and those who are in authority who make the rules of society. And so we are to pray that they make it easy on us so we can live godly lives in society. If, uh, let's say, they started uh, setting up uh, guillotines and started chopping off people's heads, if anyone professed to know Christ, that would really put a damper on evangelism, wouldn't it? I mean, it would put a damper on things because you know that if you're going to go share Christ, you may end up with your head in a basket. And so we are to pray for our leaders who make the rules so that we can live these tranquil, quiet lives in all godliness and dignity, not for the purpose of indulging the flesh, not for the purpose of having, you know, the motor home and, and being super selfish and saying, "Hey, I've got freedoms to do whatever I want and still be a Christian, no, so that we can witness for Jesus Christ. That is why we pray for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. Now, in the text before us today, we have a very simple um, statement. It's not too hard to understand, but you would be surprised at the volumes of literature written on these verses, especially verse 4. And uh, some of these we are going to engage today. You should come away from the text understanding what? God's desire is for all men. You should understand the theological issues which arise from God desiring all men to be saved. And three, how the will of God relates to His desire for all men being saved. So open your Bibles, if you haven't got there already, and look at chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And then today we're just going to focus on verses 3 and 4. This is what Paul writes. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at a proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Now, what we're going to do is, we're going to look at verse 3 and 4. We're going to examine the text, interpret the text, explain the text, and then we're going to get in to some theological issues. First, look at verse 3. Paul says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And we need to ask ourselves, what does he mean by this? What, what is this that he refers to? Well, primarily he's talking about verses 1 and 2, specifically verse 1, that we are to pray. The, whole, the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 describes how or why we are to pray, but it's the whole idea that we are to be engaged in continual, never-ending evangelistic prayer for the lost when we gather together as a congregation to worship God. That's what we are to do. That's what the this refers to. And he says this is good and acceptable. Now, the word good here is the word kalas. It means good intrinsically, good in and of itself, kind of having the inherent quality of goodness Um, Some things are only good for a short time. You know, you go down and you buy some really nice, shiny, crispy apple and just leave it on your counter for a month and then it wouldn't be good anymore. It's only good for a short time. But this is always good. It is always good, intrinsically good, that we pray for the salvation of all men for kings and all who are in authority. That is what God says is good. But He not only says it's good, He also says it is acceptable, which uh, comes from a word which means to be welcome or well-received. Literally, it means uh, to be face-to-face with. It means to be the, before the eyes of. He says this is good intrinsically and before the face or eyes of God, it is well received or acceptable that we be praying for all men for their salvation. The title God our Savior, who it's acceptable in front of, God our Savior is the same title that Paul used in chapter 1, verse 1. And remember we talked about how that was an Old Testament phrase, that that was a specific phrase that God was, was um, given in the Old Testament to describe to the Jews that he alone was the Savior. There is only one Savior, there isn't two, there isn't three, there is only one Savior. Isaiah forty three eleven reads I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah forty five twenty one says there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, there is none except me. Now, that is pretty interesting when you come to think about it, because in the New Testament, who is the Savior? Jesus. But yet, when you go in the Old Testament, over and over again, it says Elohim is the Savior, Adonai is the Savior, Yahweh is the Savior. But in the New Testament, it says Jesus is the Savior. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Now, what does that mean? That means that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai. Titus 2.13 applies almost this very same title to Jesus when Paul tells Titus that we should be, quote, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. In 1 John 4.14, It's especially clear, as John says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus is the, definite article, Savior of the world, making Himself equal with God. Jesus called Himself the way and the truth and the life. And Peter, speaking of Jesus in Acts 4.12, said, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And so we know that Jesus is the Savior. He is the great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Then we move to verse 4. So it's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, what? Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And now we begin to get into some goodies. Because we look at this verse and it says that God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved. Now, this word desire here is the Greek word fellow. It is the word uh, will. And sometimes it's used of God's kind of determinative will that he makes sure something happens. It's his, his will of uh, of absolute certainty, but other times it's used of just His desire, what He desires to have happen. For instance, in your life, God desires that you pray without ceasing, but do you? No, most of us do not. As a matter of fact, I think all of us, if we were honest, said we we didn't. God doesn't want you ever to sin. That is His desire for you, but do you sin? Do we sin? Yes, we all sin. Well, how is that? Because it's not his absolute active will that we not sin, but it is his desirous will that we do not sin. Sometimes it's used in that way, and that is how it is used here in this text. W.E. Vine says this word signifies the gracious desire of God for all men to be saved. Not all are willing to accept his condition, depriving themselves either by self-established criterion of their perverted reason or because of their self-indulgent preference for sin, end quote. So, God does desire all men to be saved. Now, there are some men of a very strict reform position, and when I say reformed, I mean who follow the teachings of Calvin and, and uh, Presbyterianism of the Westminster uh, line, who would say that, The all here doesn't mean all. It means all kinds or groups or classifications of men. But it doesn't mean all every each, which is its basic meaning. But there is a problem with this. Because if you look at the text, look at verse 1, it says that God wants us to have entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And it's clearly all men there. Also, he goes on to say in verse 2 that we are to pray for all who are in authority. And all there, which is the same word used in verse 4, means all who are in authority. And he wants us to have all godliness, not partial godliness. And all means all there also. And also in verse 6, it says Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, which means all, every each also. And so it's very difficult to say that both before and after, the all means all, every each, but then here it only means certain classifications or certain groups of men. You see, they have to believe that that word doesn't mean all, every each, because if they do believe it means all, every each, it destroys one of their doctrines. And Reformed people don't like to give up their doctrines very easily. I mean, Luther fought for those things. Calvin fought for the people, died for those doctrines. Now, when we come to this, we need to remember that we don't have the prerogative to take the plain meaning of the text and redefine it. Spurgeon, commenting on this text, said that you could read any number of good doctors who, after exegeting this passage, would make you think the passage says God desires some men to be saved. But that is not what the text says. The text says God desires all men to be saved. The word save, sozo in the Greek, when used in the context of Christ's ransom and God wanting men to come to the knowledge of the truth, is always used of salvation from sins, which results in eternal life. But this text does not teach universalism. He's saying, what's that? Well, it's not that little joint underneath your car. It is the concept that because Christ died for the sins of the world, therefore, all men are saved. That is not true. That is an extreme in the other way. That is to say that just because Christ took upon himself the sins of all the world, therefore all men are saved. That is called universalism. That is false. We know that many are called but few are chosen. We know that the gate is narrow that leads to eternal life and few are those who find it. We know that hell will be full of people who swim in the lake of fire for eternity because they have rejected Jesus Christ. So that's not what Paul is saying. There's many texts which make that perfectly clear. Now, what's interesting is you look in the text and you look at what this says. When he says, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He uses two different different, uh, uh, tenses here, two different infinitives. The first is a passive He passively desires all men to be saved. And what does that mean? When something is active, then the subject is the doer of the action. If this was an active infinitive, it would mean that God is actively pursuing the salvation of all men. And of course, if that was the case, then all men would be saved and universalism would be true. But that is not what the passage says. It says God is passively desiring all men to the save. But then, when it uses this term to come to the knowledge of the truth, it switches from a passive infinitive to an active infinitive, which means once they do come to the saving knowledge of the truth, then God actively does make sure that He gives them everything they need to understand His full revelation and know Him fully. The word know used here is the Greek word gnosis. It's got this little prefix, epi, which kind of supercharges the word. It's not just talking about a basic knowledge of salvation. It's talking about the full counsel of God. That when you come to Christ, it is God's desire for you to know the full revelation of God and the person of Jesus Christ and God's nature and character and plan for the future and everything. And we could grapple and argue over the nuances of what this text says, but it's clear. It's good and acceptable and the sight of God is That you and I pray for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. That is crystal clear. No one denies that. And the text is also clear that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And although some would deny that, that is what the text says. Now, here we go. Up the ladder, right up to not a step. Now, the first issue that comes to the forefront here is this. What about the atonement? This ransom for all, verse 6. This is interesting. The word atonement basically means to make one. And this is a good definition, a way to remember what atonement means. Somebody told me this, I forget who, when I was a really young believer. At one month. It's kind of how the word is broken down. It means to be at one with. When you have Christ's sacrifice applied to you, you become at one with God. Now, that is the simple definition of it. It actually carries with it a lot more than that. Let me see if I can give you a picture of what it would be. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system, which was all based on the atonement. You would take a lamb, a very innocent lamb, a lamb which did neither right or wrong, an unblemished lamb, free from defects. You would sometimes uh, hobble it so it wouldn't run away. You would then lay it on the altar, and you would place your hands upon the lamb's head, and you would confess your sins. This symbolized the transfer of guilt of your sins from yourself to the lamb. Then the priest would slay the lamb, cut its throat, let all of its blood run out, and the death of the lamb would then be in your substitute. Because the wages of sin are death, because you have sinned against the holy God, someone must pay the penalty. And you can either pay for it yourself, or you can have someone else pay the penalty for your sins. And so those animals were symbolic of... Of a future time when God would send Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. And so when Christ died, all of the sins of the world were placed upon Christ, the Lamb of God, and then God had Christ killed. Why? In substitution for the sins of men. That is what atonement is. Animals and their sacrifice basically covered over their transgressions in God's sight. But Jesus Christ makes them perfect. Men are made perfect when Christ's atonement is applied to them. Of course, you cannot make perfect substitution for a person with an animal, right? You can only make a perfect substitution with a person. If you're going to have a substitution, you have to substitute kind for kind, exact kind for exact kind. And it's hard to find that willing human participant that is perfect to die for you. But there was one, Jesus Christ, and he came that he might offer himself as a ransom for all, according to verse 6. Now the question is this whose sins were placed on Jesus when He died on the cross. For whom did Christ die? Was it for all men, as our text seems to indicate? Or was it, as some of the Reformed camp would teach, that it was for the sins of the elect and the elect only? And what I mean by that, it was for the sins of only those who would eventually come to saving faith in Christ. This would be like this, if I was going to preach the gospel, let's say all of you were unbelievers, I could not tell you that Jesus died for your sins, because I would be lying to some of you. I could only say, repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he died for the sins of the elect, and that was buried and rose again on the third day, and then after you believed, then I could say, no, he died for you, obviously. You see what I'm saying? Some would argue that Jesus only died for those who would eventually come to salvation. This is what is called limited atonement. Limited atonement, and it is a kind of extreme view of limited atonement. And they arrive at this conclusion for several reasons. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good. The first reason they come up with this view is that When you read in the scriptures, like the high priestly prayer or other texts, it clearly shows that Jesus came to die for the elect. He is the savior of the elect. He gave himself for the elect. He is the shepherd for the elect. It is so crystal clear, no one disagrees with that. And they would like to say, see, since he died for the elect, he only died for the elect. And then every time they get to a passage like the one we are dealing with, then they try and take all and turn it into some. Secondly, they argue that if a person has their sins atoned for, then they are saved. And so they say, listen, if Jesus did take all the sins of the world upon him and not just the sins of the elect only, then every single person has their sins atoned for and everybody will be saved. And universalism is true, which we know from the scriptures it is not, therefore he must have only had the sins of the elect placed upon him. And third, they argue that Christ would not die for those he did not intend to save. And there would be no reason for it. They say it would be a waste. Why Why die for people who you you knew wouldn't be saved? Well, this text just happens to be the death knell of such a view. Because it says he died for all men as a ransom for all. In verse 6, and it says that God desires all men to be saved. And the all, again, means all men, just like it means all men and all who are in authority and all godliness and all men to be saved. Now, when we come to this, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Okay, now, John the Baptist did say, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Not just some people. Then you have to take world and define that into some. Now if Christ died for the sins of the world, and all men have their sins atoned for, then all men must be saved. And that's what they would argue. But this is called, what is called a non sequitur, a false conclusion, a wrong inference Let's first go to the scriptures and I want to show you why. Turn to Isaiah 53. I want to show you why the scriptures teach and I believe and I am teaching you that Jesus did die for all men, not just some men. Look at Isaiah 53 verse 4. Isaiah writes this, speaking of the suffering servant Jesus Christ. Surely... Our griefs he himself bore. Now, mind you, Isaiah is speaking to a very wicked generation. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for Our iniquities, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of some of us to fall on him. No, of us all to fall on him. Remember John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. One of the things my wife did when I got married, I had this uh, kind of a bricklayer's ring, it's just kind of a plane, but she put a verse on the inside of it, a verse reference, and it's Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, which says, for the love of Christ controls us having concluded this that one died for all therefore all died and he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again in their behalf he died for all and what's interesting is even text directed to unbelievers it says this you you look at Second uh, Peter chapter two verse one. It says, "But false prophets also arose among the people. This is First Peter two one. Just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even even denying the Master who bought them." bringing swift destruction upon themselves. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, And he himself, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Propitiation means that which satisfies the wrath of God. Now, does it follow that if Jesus died for you, you have your sins forgiven? No. And let me explain why. Let's just say right now that um, God let you know that some person was going to become a Christian in three months and you went to that person, would that person have their sins forgiven? No. No. Why? Because although atonement is complete in Christ for the sins of the world, it is not applied until that person believes. All of us who already know Christ, before we placed our faith in Christ, we were... Unatoned for in that although Christ died for us and that we are even the elect according to the scriptures in which the reformed people would agree yet we would be people who would be the elect and not have atonement why because the availability of atonement is not the same as the application of it we get atonement when we place our faith in Jesus Christ And so what does this teach us? It teaches us that the scope of the atonement, the sufficiency of the atonement is universal. But the application of the atonement is particular only to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. This is what the scriptures teach. Let me just explain further. Let's say um, I were to buy you a ticket to go to Hawaii. Now, I have paid for that ticket. It has your name on it. Now, I've got it here. Now, you don't have the ticket, but it's paid for. You have to receive the ticket and get on the plane before it will help you get there. Even though it's all paid for. You do not get to Hawaii just by acknowledging its existence. You must apply it to your life. And that is how the atonement is. Jesus died for the sins of the world, yet it is only applied to those who place their faith in Him. So the scriptures teach that the atonement is universal in scope and sufficiently, fish, sufficiency, but it is limited in that it is only applied to the elect who believe. That is what the scriptures teach. Now, let's go all the way up to not a step. So, the question then arises about the sovereignty of God and the will of man. Since God is sovereign, and He is, <clears throat> and God saves all He chooses, which He does, And no one can thwart God's plan, which they can't. And God desires all men to be saved, which He does. Then how come all men aren't saved? Now, if that is confusing, what I just said, and you're thinking, well, Lord, I saved too many inferences there. I didn't take logic, and I'm getting older, and my hard drive's breaking down. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And here, Jesus addresses this issue crystal clear. John chapter 6. Addressing how men come to salvation. Look at verse 37 of John 6. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That is crystal clear. If God gives someone to Christ, they come and are not cast out. Look down at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Here Jesus says it's God's will that whenever He does give someone to me, they come, I never lose it. Look down at verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That clearly tells us that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And if the Father does draw him, Jesus will raise that person up in the last day. Look at verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Now, this is very interesting. So, what does this say? It just says this, that no one ever comes to the Father but through the Son. And no one ever comes to the Son unless the Father draws them. And if the Father draws them, they will come. They will be raised up. And they will not be lost. That is crystal clear from this passage. This is what is called the irresistible grace. That when God has chosen to save a person, that person is saved. Now, you put that with a verse like Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, and it even becomes more clear. At the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And whom He called, He also justified. And whom He justified, He also glorified. And if you look in there, you won't see any I, me, or my's. They are also he, he, he. God is the one who saves. He is the one who predestines. He is the one who justifies. He is the one who glorifies. Salvation is of God. The scriptures make that clear. Now let's go back to our question. So, if God is the one who saves, and because He is sovereign, and because He can save anybody He wants, and all that He gives the Son come to Him, and He loses none, and if our text says that he desires all men to be saved, then how come they all aren't? Now, this is the great question of all the ages. And it's based off of this issue, the will of God, the sovereign will of God. Now, I am not going to Go up on not a step, but I do that in the basic Bible doctrine class. You can sign up for it. It's going to start next week on Sunday night. But right now, I'm just going to go up to the step and we're going to stop. And some of you may be a little exasperated, but that's just the way it is. (laughs) Let's talk about the will of God. First, we need to understand that God is sovereign. He does whatever He wants. Psalm 115.3 says, For our God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases. Anything He wants, God does. A.W. Pink describes the sovereignty of God in his book, The Attributes of God, with these words, The sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of His supremacy, being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, He is the Most High Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as He pleases. Only as he pleases, always as he pleases, none can thwart him, none can hinder him. Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact as well as name, and that he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will. End quote. A very good definition. So we know that God is sovereign, and whatever God wants to do, he does. So the question again is, why aren't all people saved if God desires all men to be saved? The answer is this. As you study the scriptures, you will discover there are two kinds of God's will, and we've already mentioned one. One is called his his, um, declarative or his absolute will, what he declares will happen. This is when God determines what will happen and He makes it happen. For instance, all the prophecies about Christ and His crucifixion, did they happen? Yes. Did they happen like God said they would happen? Yes. Why? Because God decreed it would happen. How about all the prophecies that God says speaks about the future? How many of those prophecies do you think might come true? Every single one of them. Why? Because God is sovereign and he has decreed absolutely that those things would come to pass. So that is one aspect of God's will, that he has a certain absolute will that he makes sure comes to pass. Now, we only know a little bit of his absolute decree. Just the the predictions in the Bible are the only parts of his absolute decree that we know of. The rest we just experience every day, but we don't know them before they get here. But there is a second kind of God's will, a second type of God's will, which theologians describe as his prescriptive will or his moral will. This is what God prescribes to us in his word, what he tells us to do and not do. You know, don't sin, yet we do. You know, pray without ceasing, yet we don't. Don't be anxious, yet we're anxious. Now, it is always God's will that, you know, we're not anxious or whatever, yet We often go against what God's will. Well, how is that? Because it's not His absolute decree that He enforces. It's His will that He prescribes, His desirous will. It's what He wishes we would do. But He doesn't make sure that we do it. He doesn't force us to obey. A good example of how God's absolute will works in comparison with maybe his, um, his uh, permissive or his moral will or prescriptive will, is in Luke 19, in the triumphal entry. you remember what happened there? In Luke 19, 38 through 40, you know, the, the Jesus coming in and uh, they are crying out, you know, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're quoting Psalm 18, 118. You know, Hosanna and the highest and the palm branches and everything. And the Pharisees are really bothered by this. They say, hey, wait a second, man, this guy isn't our king. What are you doing? What are you doing? And it says, some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you, if these become quiet, the stones, the rocks will cry out. Why? Because God had decreed that Jesus would come into Jerusalem and they would cry out, Blessed is he who would come in the name of the Lord and Hosanna in the highest. And so it had to happen. And if the Pharisees didn't say it, if the if the disciples didn't say it, if the crowds didn't say it, Jesus said, see all these rocks here, they would all say it because God said it would happen. That's how certain the decree of God is. Now, so we have this prescriptive will this prescribed will, this desirous will that God wishes to have happen, then we have His absolute decree. We can go against what He prescribes, but we cannot go against His decree. Now, God says in our text that He desires all men to be saved. Now, is that His absolute decree? No, it couldn't be, because if it was, all men would be saved. So we know, just from the mere fact that not all people are saved, that what God is talking about here is He's prescribing that all men could be saved. Remember Acts uh, 17, verse 30, when um, Paul is preaching, he says, um, God is now commanding that all men everywhere should repent. But do they all repent? No. Do you remember what Jesus said at the end of the uh, parable of the wedding feast in uh, Matthew 22, verse 14? He said, And many are called, but few are, what? Chosen. When Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel, um, in Acts 13, verse 48, it says, Quote, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Do you see the sovereignty of God there? That is absolute. When, when Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 4, 5, and 6, that just as we were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, and that we would be holy and blameless before Him, and that He predestined us to the adoption of sons, that is what? Absolute decree. So, the call to salvation is universal. But, only a few come. And those are the elect. And it goes hand in hand with the atonement. Why the atonement, Jesus died as a ransom for all, that he paid the penalty for the sins of the world, yet it is only applied to the elect. And just as the same as though the gospel is preached to all the nations, only the elect end up believing. Now... Some of you are saying, "What did you act? Jack, jack, wait a second, man. I got some questions, pal. Do not leave us here." You know, I go to the store and there's certain kinds of, you know, over-the-counter medication or whatever that you take that has kind of a sugar coating and it makes it real easy to swallow. But if you were to chew one of those, that would be foolish. Well, some things in the Bible are made to swallow with faith. Whole. And you don't chew them. And so I would recommend that you not try to chew the question of why God, out of a total fallen human race of wretched, rebellious, sinning humanity, would take some wretched sinners and save them, and others he would not. I do not know the answer to that question. So, what do we do? We're thinking, Oh, Jack, and this is three major things. My brain's full. What am I supposed to do now when I leave? Well, remember John 3.16, that God loved the world. And He sent His Son. He gave His Son that whoever would believe in Him would have eternal life. And because of that... We don't have to worry about who is elect and who is not elect. We just need to be worrying about living our lives in such a way that we let our lives so shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That we would be a witness for Jesus Christ and know that God sends the invitation to all men, commanding all men everywhere to repent. Secondly, because we don't know who will be saved, because we don't know who the elect are, we need to diligently pray for the salvation of all men, not just the elect. God tells us to pray for all men, and we need to do that, all men. Third, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, knowing that you did nothing to earn your salvation, knowing that you didn't deserve salvation, knowing that there was no good thing in you that God said, oh man, I need Jack Hughes. I mean, oh, he's so great. Hardly. God makes us great. God gives us life. He gives us His Spirit. He gives us His Word. He gives us intellect. He gives us both common and spiritual gifts. He made us everything good that we are. Everything bad we are, we made us. And we need to keep that in mind, and that should cause us to want to abandon ourselves to the service of God. And especially the fourth thing, knowing that God calls us to pray for all men and that He desires all men to be saved and that He does it through the gospel, we need to be diligent in sharing Christ with people, with our family members, with the people at work, with our neighbors, whoever we come in contact with and not be ashamed of the gospel. Richard Baxter, in his classic work, The Reformed Pastor, said this, quote: If God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth then surely it beseems us to offer salvation unto all men and to endeavor to bring them to the knowledge of the truth. And if Christ tasted death for every man, it is meet that we should preach His death to every man. Let's pray. Father, we come before You thankful that Christ died as a ransom for all. We thank you that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way, but you have caused our iniquities to fall upon you. We thank you for that. Father, we pray that you would continue to remind us that Jesus is not only that which satisfies your wrath for us who believe, but for the sins of the whole world, and that, Father. Christ tasted death for every man. So, Father, in our words and our deeds and everything we do, may we diligently pray for the lost. May we remember that it is not our job to try and figure out whom you have called before the foundation of the world. That information is to make us humble so that we would know that salvation is of you and not us, and that we need to be diligent to share your word with the lost, that they might come to repentance, and that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.